Good morning. Great time to be able to meet together with one another in this church. I, you know, uh, Linda and I took a little trip last week to California for my family reunion, but we also happened, Linda and I went to the same high school in the same class. And uh, at, just fortunately for us, our high school had a 50-year high school reunion while we were out there. So we went. Not sure we would have gone otherwise because, you know, people that you knew for four years that now 50 years later, uh, it's a unique experience, right? So there were probably about 150 people at this, and many of them we did know. I played football in high school. You get to know guys a little bit closer, and, um, you know, you just knew people different ways through. I I had two of the ladies that were in my uh, driver's training car with me that remembered how I almost killed them because I had never driven before. But, um, you know, what struck me probably more than anything as I talked to people is I didn't talk to a single person that was a member of a church. And uh, I talked to many people whose lives had been shattered by sin and sexual immorality. Um, Again, one of the ladies I was talking to uh, had been um, married for... 20 years and had five children, and one day her husband came home and told her that he had become a homosexual, and um, just ruined her world. Um, but, you know, that's, that's Corinth, okay? When we come to the book of Corinthians, I really felt like I was in Corinth. I mean, the, uh, and that's the way the world is outside of of the instruction of wisdom in the relationship with, with our God and with the Holy Spirit, that these things are common occurrences in the world. They're, what we see is disastrous and cataclysmic type of sorrow. It's regular life. Um, and it just really struck me how there's really not, as I was talking to people, even one lady that I believe had come to faith through some of the difficulties in her life, not an understanding of the church, because she asked me, she, she's going to churches to hear different good preachers. And in California, there's, there's some good preachers. That's not what church is about. That's not what a church is, is to do. It's just to be a place where you go listen, and then you're gone. You know, the church is to glorify God. It's ordained by God. We don't make up the rules for church. We don't decide what goes on at church. God did. But what God makes clear is what we're to be doing in church. And Paul planted this church in Corinth. And what he's doing is trying to come alongside this church and accomplish what God has the church to do. And in doing that, he's correcting some of the things that they're doing that aren't glorifying God, right? But what does it allow for us? What we, as you're, as, as we're studying this book together, and we're going down this road in Corinthians together. How does that help you glorify God in your attendance in church? Because that's what you're to do. How, how can it help you understand better what, what are you supposed to be doing 
in order to accomplish what God's given us in his word and uh, doing it in such a way that follows the instruction that we're given. And I know that's your heart. That's why you're here. And so it's wonderful then to look at Paul's letter in that regard, in that, you know, this is, this is what he's trying to help, is for the church to function properly and for the church to um, glorify God. And, you know, it talks about in Ephesians 5 how Christ wants to present his bride how? To be holy and blameless. There's to be a purity in the church. And today's lesson is about how we can preserve purity in the church, a call to preserve purity in the church. You know, um, Paul's written a number of letters, and he gives a full breadth to what that means. A lot of it has to do with one another's. You've heard us talk about one another's that are... um, the relationship we have with one another in the church. There's 94 of those instructions. 47 of those give instructions to the church uh, to accomplish within the relationships with one another. And when you look at these common themes show up, the first one is we're to love one another. We're to love one another. One third of the uh, one another's are, we're to love one another, we're to, through love, we're to serve one another. We're to be devoted to one another in love. That's to be the relationship that we have. You know, when um, Tony and Daniel talked about we're going to make calls and, and, and work on shepherding this group, have a picnic, so we can build relationships together so that we can know one another. To love somebody, you got to know them. And we just want to facilitate that, understanding that that's a, we, we're a diverse group. But we want to help build some relationships. And we want to help you be able to do what the Bible calls us, to love one another. Another third of the verses have to do with unity. You know, we're to, uh, within the church, we're to be unified. We're to be at peace with one another. We're not to grumble against one another, but we're to be of the same mind with one another. We're to accept one another. Uh, We're to be kind, tenderhearted. We're to forgive one another. We're to seek good for one another. Uh, We're to confess sins to one another. And then about 15% of the verses talk about how we're to show humility. We're to give preference to one another in honor. We're to regard one another as more important than yourselves. We're to serve one another. We're to be subject to one another. All of those are what the church is to be. It's not a place just to come listen to Good preaching and go home. There's a a lot of commands in Scripture of how we're supposed to be related to one another. We come to worship a holy God, but we also come to be a part of the body of Christ. And then last, there's these other one another's that are mentioned in bearing one another's burdens, speaking truth to one another, encouraging one another, stimulating one another to love and good deeds, praying for one another, being hospitable to one another. Well, we're going to focus on a particular uh, part of that because where Paul is in, in, in this book of Corinthians, he's correcting some of the challenges that have shown up in this church. Now, you remember, Paul planted this church in Corinth during his second missionary journey, 
And he spent 18 months there. Now let me ask you, does 18 months seem like a long time? You know, in some regards, when you're teaching people for 18 months, that, that could seem like a long time. Uh, Tom Pennington's been teaching us for 20 years. Does that seem like a long time? You know, it's not a long time. And so there is going to be problems. There is going to be challenges. And Paul's checking in regularly with this church. And he wants this church to be what God intends this church to be. He knows he's coming. Uh, this church is coming out of this Corinthian culture that's grossly immoral. Uh, immoral. There's idol worship, false gods. That's what, the, that's what the culture's like. But from the beginning when Paul came and started teaching in the synagogue, he taught that Jesus was the Christ. He was evangelizing Jews and Greeks. And as he taught in the synagogue, there became those that began to understand that what Paul was preaching was different than their religion and what their religious leaders were teaching. And they resisted Paul and they blasphemed, caused Paul to leave the synagogue. And he planted this church next door at a man's house named uh, Justice, Titus Justice. And uh, because there were those that had come to the synagogue that had responded to the gospel, and it says they had believed, they had repented, they had believed, and they had been baptized. And that's what made up this early church. One of them was Crispus, who was head of the synagogue. So God was working in this. Matter of fact, God had appeared to Paul and said, Look, don't be afraid. Can you imagine Paul being afraid? Well, you get enough people trying to kill you, I guess that encouragement was helpful and comforting. He said, but there's people here. God said, there's people here that had yet to be saved that needed to hear the message. That's why Paul stayed for 18 months. You know, and I think in our microwave world, the expectation is after 18 months, these Corinthians would be mature and completed. They would, you know, this is Paul teaching them. But that wasn't the case. In fact, the church had many problems. And there were some in the church that continued to engage in the same sinful activity they were doing in the world. And Paul gives a list of this activity that they were, if you're in 1 Corinthians 5, just turn the page over. Because this is 1 Corinthians 6, verse 8. It says, on the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. He's talking to the church. He's letting them know that they are guilty of wrong. When we'll get into that next week. But you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brethren. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers. That's not even an exhaustive list, but that's a pretty exhaustive list, right? It says, we'll inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 11, such were some of you. They were in the Corinthian culture. They came out of the Corinthian culture. Such were some of you, but 
you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Paul is acknowledging, he didn't, he, look, these problems in the Corinthian church are significant. They're bringing the culture into the church. The one we're going to talk about today could destroy the church. The one we talked about last week with the divisions could destroy the church. But Paul doesn't quit on the church, and he doesn't call them all unbelievers, and he doesn't stalk out. I mean, sometimes you could feel that way when you have people that are responding and living in this way in God's holy church. You knew it broke Paul's heart. You knew it absolutely, you know, um, ruined him before the Lord going in intercessory prayer for these people. But he didn't abandon them. What Paul did is he gave more of himself. And he pointed them to what their responsibility was to the God who sanctified them, who washed them, who justified them, and helped them understand what their responsibility was in that area. I want you to just look briefly at what Paul's trying to accomplish from Ephesians 5. And again, just trying to keep you in context that we're getting to look at what Paul's um, efforts are in accomplishing what God's given him to do to build up the church. Look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. Because this is what Paul says is supposed to be the activity in the church. Because he says in verse 11, he gave some as apostles. That would be Paul. And some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, gifts to the church. What are they for? Verse 12. For the equipping of the saints. Who are the saints? We are. All of us are part of this church. And we're to be equipped, it says. For what? We're to be equipped for the work of the service. For the purpose of building up the body of Christ. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith. And of the knowledge of the Son of God. To a mature man. To a measure of stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. What does that produce in us? It produces a discernment in us. Look at verse 14. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But what are we to do? Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even the church. Remember all the divisions and factions where people wanted to, the people in the church wanted to exalt their leader? And Paul's always exalting the head of the church, who is whom? Christ. Christ, who's head of the church, 16, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. We're part of this church. We're being equipped for the works of the service that we're to be able to accomplish through the Spirit indwelling us and through the knowledge of the, of, of the, the Word of God and of a relationship with Jesus Christ. 
All of us. Every one of us. This isn't where people come to sit and hear good preaching. This is where people come to get equipped. This is where people come to do the works of the service. And this is where people, look at verse 17. So this I say to you, affirm together with the Lord, that you no longer walk just as the Gentiles walk. Do you get that? That's what Paul's telling the Corinthians. You can't do that anymore. You can't walk as the Gentiles walk. In the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. That's the Corinthian culture. That's the United States of America culture. That is the world we live in, right? Verse 20, but you did not learn Christ in this way. They learned Christ. If indeed you have heard him, which they have heard him, and you have been taught just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceits, and that you be renewed in the spirit of the mind and put on the new self in the likeness of God that has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Okay. So what Paul is doing today in our chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians is he's seeking to accomplish what has been written right here. He is seeking to preserve the purity of God's church. And he's exhorting the Corinthians and exhorting them to this type of behavior. So as we read this in ourselves, it helps us understand every one of us have a responsibility to one another. And we're going to look at what our responsibility is today to one another. I read you the one of another's. I don't want you to think this is a sole responsibility or just one thing, but there's a number of things that we do in the church. And this is one of them that they weren't doing. That Paul says, you must do. You must do. Or this church is going to be destroyed. What could be that important? Well, we know that last week, or the last couple of weeks, because we went through chapter 1 through verse 4, unity is hugely important. And the reason Paul had to start with unity is you can't address what we're going to address today in a church that's not unified. If the church is broken, divisive, and factious, you can't... You can't accomplish what, he, what he's going to call the church to do today. The church has to be unified, and you'll see that. Because all of us are a part of the activity that, that takes place today. So he, that's where he started. But he goes from there to talk about how the church is to preserve the unity of, with one another. Let's look at that now. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we'll read the whole chapter. It's 13 verses. Let's, so it says, it's actually reported that there is immorality among you. An immorality of such a kind does not even exist among the Gentiles that someone has his father's wife. Well, you have become arrogant and you have not mourned. Instead, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. For I, on my part, though absent in the body but present in the spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, 
I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sanctified, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, not with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or, you, or with the covetous or swindlers or with idolaters. For then you would have had to go out of the world. But actually I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetousness or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among you. Okay, so you picked up the gist of this. We are going to be talking about church discipline today. And, you know, we, we received some pretty good instruction on that, on church discipline. And I think um, most of you have, have been exposed to this. I don't think it's brand new. But I'm not sure that we've been rebuked like Paul's rebuking these Corinthians because they were so proud they weren't participating in this. They thought that they were above this. And no one is. No one's above this. There's no one in the, in the, in the uh, assembly of believers that is not part of keeping the church pure. It requires all of us. And so Paul's, you know, addressing these people as those of the church of God. Um, and his first... Um, well, we will look back at the book theme, you know, where Paul says, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Great statement of this book. And the, for today, he says, therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Our theme is the purity of the church is preserved when humble believers confront anyone engaged in sinful activity, following the biblical process of church discipline. You see that it's humble believers who confront one engaged in sinful activity. And they follow a process that's given to us biblically. But the first thing Paul addresses is the shocking sin. And you know, a lot of people when they, when they say the shocking sin, they, well that must be the sin of this man that's incestuous. He has his father's wife. That is a shocking sin. But you know what Paul's addressing? It's not his sin. What he's addressing is the believers. It's their sin. 
He said the believers allowed a man engaged in gross sexual immorality to remain in the church. And that's shocking to him. He says it's actually reported, meaning that it's being told everywhere. It's undoubted fact. This is what the church has as their witness to the outside world. Even the people of the outside world know about this that's going on in this church. That there's immorality, this, this word immorality is the same word as pornea. You've, you've heard that often. It's the word for pornography. Any illicit sexual activity. But Paul has previously even addressed this. He talks about in, in chapter 9 of this chapter. He's, he wrote them a letter. It's not a letter that was uh, saved or became part of Scripture, but it addressed sexual immorality in the church. He wrote that letter previously. But now he's saying, look, this immorality is such of a kind, in, in, in verse 1, it doesn't even exist among the Gentiles. This man is, is, that's in the church, is, it's a, it, the sexual immorality is so perverted that even the pagan Gentiles didn't do this. He has his father's wife. That is his stepmother. It's uh, his father, either his mother had died or his father had been divorced and married again, and his son now has his father's wife. That can either mean that he's in a uh, sexual relationship with him or has actually married this woman, um, and that his father was still alive. The woman's not being disciplined, so the, it appears she was an unbeliever. And clearly, in the Old Testament, this sin has uh, been condemned. Um, Leviticus 20.11, if there's any man who lies with his father's wife and he has uncovered his father's nakedness, both of them should surely be put to death. Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 30, a man shall not take his father's wife. Deuteronomy 27.20, cursed is he who lies with his father's wife. One of the commentaries said, one reckless sinner makes the entire Corinthian church ineffective in its witness to the Gentile community. That's one outcome of that happening. Paul's going to talk about what else that does to the Corinthian church. But Paul once again identifies pride as the sinful attitude of the believers. Remember, that was the sinful attitude that was causing the factions and the divisions. It was their pride. But Paul says it is also their pride that is allowing this sin to be in their midst without them addressing it. He says, you have become arrogant. You have ignored God's word. And it may be in your naivety, you believe you're being tolerant, that you're showing love. But you're not doing what God has commanded is love. You're doing it so that the others in the church won't be distressed. This, you know, we've had church uh, discipline while I've been an elder uh, several times. Um, and, you know, I remember one season in particular, it seemed like we had two or three happen back to back to back. I mean, we'll go a couple of years without uh, a church discipline going to excommunication. Um, but we had several, and you know, it was unsettling because we don't 
like to have to have that level of discipline of our own brothers and sisters. But you know what? It, it, it may be unsettling, but it's mandatory. It's not optional. It's not something that the elders can step back and go, you know, we've, we've had a couple of these. Let's just skip this one. We can't do that because we are God's church. This is a holy church, and, and we allow sin in the midst. It says that that's a bad example to the Gentile world. But you know what else Paul's going to give an example of? It infects us together in the body of Christ. It infects us. He's going to give that analogy in just a minute. And when they ignore this, it's their pride. You should have mourned, it says in verse 2 instead. You should have grieved over the sin of this man instead of tolerating it. It shattered his, it's going to shatter his life. It's going to impact those around him. There should be grieving over that. There should be a mourning over that. And then there should have been action taken. Can't leave that man if he refuses to repent, if he's been confronted with his sin, you can't leave him in your midst. Verse 2, the one that had done this deed should have been removed from your midst. Following the path, the biblical process that we have for church discipline. We, we had that presented very clearly in Matthew 18, that, um, you know, it, the first step is always a private conversation. That's where most church discipline begins and ends. Did you know that? If we would just see that as our obligation, that if a, if a brother, we see a brother and so we go to them privately and say, you know, this isn't in keeping with God's word. Here's what God's word says. Here's what you're doing. Stop doing it. And turn toward Christ and do what's right. You know, that's what we're to be about doing as the body of Christ. In love, in gentleness, in patience, in kindness. But we're to be doing that. But if the person doesn't repent, and you know, there's no time schedule given in this, by the way. We can be patient there. But if the person rejects that instruction, rejects that, we're to bring someone else in. Why? Because to help that person understand the sinfulness of his sin. And that it's not just you that's seen that, but there's others that have seen that that know that that's going to not be something that can be practiced in the church. So you bring someone else, someone close to that person, and maybe two. So there's two or three witnesses that have now confronted this individual in love, in kindness, in patience, letting the Word of God correct that person. But if that person denies that, it says in Matthew 18, but if you do not listen after you've taken two or three witnesses, it says, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. Tell it to the church. And that's when, so your first level of participation is in a private conversation. Now, maybe you've been a recipient of a private conversation. What's your responsibility there? If someone's come to you and said, you know, this is a sinful activity you're engaged in. The Bible says not for you not to do this. You need to stop and you need to pursue righteousness in this area. What's your response? You're to repent if you confess your sin. 
He is faithful and righteous to forgive your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. It's sin before the Lord. It restores your relationship to the Lord and to the body of Christ. We all should be that humble to be able to receive that if we're in sin. Church discipline ends there when you repent. But if not, it goes further. The second place where the whole church is called to be a part of is when the sin comes before the church and now we're all involved together with this, this person who's refused to repent. If you don't know them, you're to pray for them. If you do know them, you're to go to them and say, you need to respond to the call to repent, right? In love, again, in patience. And we give time for that. Sometimes. Sometimes that window's closed shortly if they're so divisive that they're infecting the church intentionally. That window closes. And that person has to be taken out quicker. But this is for the purity of the church. This is not anybody's, man's designed way of accomplishing these things. And that's where uh, any of us that are doing this, we are totally reliant upon God for the path to follow and for the results that happen. It's not our plan and it's not our results. We just want to do what God's called us to do. We want to be faithful to do that. Hebrews 12, 6 says, For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, he scourges every son whom he receives. Discipline is part of the life of a disciple. True love then is expressed in the desire to see our brother freed from sin's deception. And we have to be courageous enough to follow God's pattern to break him out of it. That's what should have been done, it says in verse 2, and they didn't do it. Well, Paul judges the individual in his immoral lifestyle as a result in excommunication. He says, it's time now. It's reached that part of the process. And although Paul couldn't be with them, he joined them in this disciplinary action. He said, I've already judged him and so committed this as though I were present. And then in verse 4 he says, in the name of our Lord Jesus, not by their own devised method, but by what the Lord Jesus prescribed, that when you are assembled, again, it's the responsibility of this local church, it required their unity, it required their humility. And I'll be with you in spirit. And that had to be a great encouragement to these believers to understand this was not, there's, look, there's no, process, there's no part of church discipline that is without heartfelt emotion on those that are a part of it. Not the ones just receiving it, but the ones that are, it's hard. And we, we, we're just flesh and blood. Uh, we love people. We don't want to see people but. The Lord says they need to be disciplined, and we need to follow this to help them and to help the church so that it would be holy and blameless. And Paul's given, he says, imitate me. He's given them this example to follow himself. Verse 5, I have decided to live such a one to Satan. What, is, what does that mean, to deliver such a one to Satan? He's saying, take them out of the realm of Jesus Christ, which is the church, and put them back in the world, which is the realm of Satan. Why? Well, he says it's for the destruction of his flesh. See, there's a part of us that's, that's uh, temporal, and there's a part of us that's eternal. If this man is a true believer, his soul was not going to be impacted 
by this, but his flesh is. When he talks about the destruction of his flesh, this, this is death. This is a body destroyed. Um, but it doesn't include the destruction of his soul. If the man's a true believer, he may suffer greatly due to his sin, but his future is with the Lord in heaven. But this is to bring the man to repentance, and it may take a very significant experience to do that. The Lord's discipline may result in death in a person. It may result in their sickness or their weakness. You know, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 28, it said, but a man must examine himself. In doing so, eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For who, he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself. We're talking about the Lord's Supper here. If he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many of you are weak and sick and a number sleep. That means die. Because of the properly taking the Lord's, Lord's Supper. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord. That is the Lord's discipline on believers. The Lord's discipline may result in the death of a person, yet it serves as a warning to the church. It's a warning to the church. 1 Timothy 5 says, Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Those who continue in sin rebuke How? Rebuke in the presence of all. Why? So that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. There is a benefit to the church. There's the threefold purpose of church discipline. One is the purity of the church. The second is to edify the believers within this church to keep them from sinning. And the third is for the individual himself that he might be reconciled, restored to God and to the church. In this particular case, this man that was disciplined out of the church, we don't know that this is the guy that Paul refers to in 2 Corinthians, but it well may be. And it may be that this particular um, discipline caused this man to be broken over his sin and that he repented. And what, what it says in 2 Corinthians 2, 6 through 8, it says, sufficient for such a one in this his punishment, which was inflicted by the majority, which was the right thing to do, so that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him now, otherwise such one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. That would be a great celebration. That would be a great celebration for the church, to see one who was confronted in his sin, removed from the church, but was so broken over his sin and the isolation from his brothers and sisters in Christ and of the relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ that he repented, came back to the church and sought restoration. And Paul instructed the church, restore such a one. That's, I've seen that happen in church discipline in this church. And it is a celebration. It, it, you know, it's emotional. Because only God can accomplish that. And God only accomplishes that through us being faithful to do what he's called us to do as the body of Christ. So Paul confronts the Corinthians for their tolerance of the shocking sin of the church. He rebukes them for their arrogance and boasting. 
that when they should have been grieving over the unrepentant man engaged in sexual immorality, and he calls him to discipline the individual in order to preserve the purity of the church. He gives him this example. It's an appropriate analogy in that the believers exhibited a pride that would destroy the church. He says in verse 6, Do you not know that a little leaven, now for all of you bakers, you know leaven, it's yeast, you know what yeast does. In Paul's uh, analogy here, the making of bread started with a small piece of dough from a previous lump. Water was added to the little leaven, and it began to ferment. The piece was added to the next batch of fresh dough, and it made the whole dough rise. So it infected the whole dough. And what Paul is saying here, his analogy of the yeast is that the contamination was like the tolerance of sin that destroys the purity of God's church. If you allow this sin to remain in the church, it's going to infect the whole church. You can't stop it. You have to remove it. And if you allow that in the church, a little yeast is going to leaven the whole loaf. It's going to affect and impact everyone. He's saying, you're in danger. He's calling them to understand your arrogance is such. It's like, have you seen these free climbers who get on these mountains and they don't think they need any ropes? They can, they can run up these straight, you know, cliffs and uh, do all this without ropes. Several documentaries on free climbers. You know how most of them end? Yeah, the guy falls and dies. Almost everyone. Because they're so arrogant, they believe they can, they can do that. And uh, Paul's saying, you're so arrogant, you believe you can allow this sin in your church and that it won't infect you. But don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole, the whole loaf? It, um, it's, you're, you're, you're in an area now where you're risking the destruction of your church. And he's saying, that can't be. And this is the analogy of yeast removal to preserve the purity. And he gives, again, that analogy uh, that they're to clean out the leaven. Now, you know, this was a lot more um, familiar to the church Paul's teaching than it is to our church. Because they were... Um, familiar with the first Passover when the Israel sprinkled the lamb's blood on their doorposts so that the angel of death would pass their house as he killed the firstborn of the Egyptians. As a result of the impact of the last peg, Pharaoh had allowed the Israelites to leave Egypt, but the Israelites were freed from their slavery in Egypt to a new life in the promised land. So in preparation for the Exodus, bread was baked, but commanded no leaven was to be added. Now we're familiar with the events of Passover and with the Exodus, what I'm saying we're not as familiar with is not all of us make bread on a regular basis. Um, we're not as familiar with leaven they would be. And uh, that the leaven was all to be left behind because they were leaving the bondage of the Egyptians and they were going into the promised land of God. They were to clean out the old leaven, purge cleanse it thoroughly like they did with this yeast before they went in to the promised land. And that that old leaven represented any influence of evil. In verse 8, it says that that old leaven is malice and wickedness. That to leave that out so that you may be a new lump that was pure, a new people in Christ. Paul goes on to say that the Corinthian believers were sanctified by Christ's death on the cross. 
But just as you are, in fact, unleavened, you're sanctified by Christ. You're set apart. You're called to live holy lives. 1 Corinthians 6, 11 says, Some of you were washed, but you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God. Paul's exhorting the believers to remove the evil in their church and cleanse itself as the Jews cleanse themselves from all yeast. He says, uh, for Christ, our Passover has also been sacrificed. So again, he draws their attention to the Passover feast where the lamb was slaughtered, the blood was put on the doorpost, and it pointed to the cross where Jesus was crucified as the lamb of God, as the final sacrifice who voluntarily took the punishment of sin for all of us, for all the Corinthians and all of us, all believers. His people were sanctified because of his death on the cross. In order that they would be a church of sincerity and truth, malice and wickedness must be removed. Verse 8, therefore let us celebrate the feast. The Corinthians continually celebrate their deliverance from sin, not with old leaven. It says this old leaven of malice and wickedness, malice being the evil nature. Wickedness means the acts arising from the evil nature. But with the unleavened bread, of sincerity and truth. Remember, whenever we correct someone in sin, we don't want to point them just to their sin. We want to point them to the activity that they're involved in that moves them away from their sin but into the righteous behavior before God. And that would be of sincerity and truth here. Genuine honesty and integrity is what sincerity means. Genuineness, not this false pride and truth, truth that's derived from the word of God. Paul confronts the Corinthians for their tolerance. He rebukes them for their arrogance. He calls them to discipline the individual in order to preserve the purity of the church. He gives them the analogy of the small amount of yeast permeating the whole dough in the same way tolerating sin destroys the purity of the old church. He calls the church to celebrate the sacrifice of Christ that resulted in their sanctification by removing malice and wickedness and walking in sincerity and truth. And then finally, he gives a clarification of that earlier command. You know, he said in verse 9, I wrote you in my previous letter not to associate with immoral people. What Paul's saying is believers are to respond differently if they are in the world. They are in the world, that sin is going to be prevalent among them. He said, look, I didn't mean with the immoral people of the world. You're not to disassociate yourself from them. What are you supposed to do with the people in the world? Evangelizing, we're, we're called to be ambassadors, to beg them, to make an appeal on behalf of Christ that they be reconciled to God. Says, no, you're not telling, you'd have to go out of the world. That's not what you're to do. But believers are to judge the people in the church who engage in a pattern of sin. Actually, I wrote to you not to associate, remove them from fellowship with any so-called brother, one who professes to be in Christ. It's a member of your church. If he's actively immorally, church discipline's not to be restricted, though, just to sexual immorality. He goes on in verse 11, he says, or covetousness, or idolater, or reviler, or drunkard, or swindler. You know, he's gonna, those are going to be sins that are in the church that he's going to admonish in, in later chapters. We'll get to those. We talked about the one in Chapter 11, about those that were drunk coming to the Lord's Supper. Uh, we're going to talk about the, 
uh, one next week who was defrauding. That was going on in their church, and he's, he's saying, we got, to, we got to confront those sins in the church. We're not even to eat with such a one. But he says, what do I have to do with judging outsiders? The sinfulness of unbelievers is not the responsibility of believers to judge, but we're to share the gospel. But believers are to discipline those in the church who engage in a pattern of sin. He said, but those, he said, do not judge those who are within the church. Yes, that's the answer to that question. Do you not judge those who are within the church? Yes, we are to. We're to judge the behavior of those in the church. It's the responsibility of every church member that sees one in a pattern of sin to confront them with that. That's why Paul's calling first the church to unify so that then the church will act together and discipline those engaged in sinful behavior. And then Paul concludes by saying, look, those who are outside, God judges. And we know how God will judge them. For the wages of sin is death. That's God's work. Ours, though, is to judge those within the church. And he says, remove the wicked men from among yourselves. Kistemaker says, it's the responsibility of the entire congregation to be involved in the process of judging sin to achieve purity in the church. When the sinner faces total isolation, the possibility of repentance is real. Church discipline is designed to cause contrition in the heart of the sinner and to nurture a desire to return to the care of the Lord Jesus. Okay, let's look at some application. My first application was join the church. What? Join the church? How is that an application of this? Well, when you join the church, you're you are committing to fulfill the obligations of membership. If, you've, if you're out there and you've said, you know, I haven't joined the church, I just haven't gotten around to it, joining the church is important. You know why it's important? This is from our own um, constitution, which, by the way, when you join the church, there's three classes. The first class goes over the doctrinal statement to make sure that you're what? That we're unified in the church. We want people in the church to be members so that we know we're unified. We all share the same doctrine. It's hugely important. Um, but the obligation of membership is to faithfully support the body of Christ. From Hebrews 10, 24, let us consider to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking the assembly of our own together as habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. There's to be submission to leadership. Submit to the church leadership. Hebrews 13, 17. You're to support the other members, support and encourage one another within the church, Galatians 6.1. Um, that's what our church is to do, and those are the obligations of membership. When you, when you commit to being a member, you're committing to serve in those obligations. Biblically, that's what we're talking about today. In addition, we're to glorify God by following the biblical process for church discipline to accomplish its threefold purpose. So again, this is from our Constitution. It says the threefold purpose of church discipline is to preserve the purity of the church. That's from 1 Corinthians 5, 6, which we covered today. To deter sin in the body from 1 Thessalonians 5, or 1 Timothy 5, 20 so that all the rest will be fearful of sinning and to promote the spiritual welfare of the offending believer by calling him to repentance. 
Galatians 6, 1, brethren, if anyone is caught in trespass, you are spiritual. Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourselves so that you too will not be tempted. You see all of that, if anyone is caught in a trespass, that's when we see our brother in a sinful activity. But you are spiritual, one who's not, one who's remaining pure, one who's battling sin. You, that's, you who are spiritual, we're to store such a one, restore by helping them understand their sin in a spirit of what? Gentleness. Look to yourselves. You know, Matthew, it talks about taking the log out of your own eyes so that you can see to help this person so that you too will not be tempted. And then finally, all of us are to strive to be holy and blameless in our own speech and conduct. That's what it expressed in Galatians 6, 2, that we would be looking to ourselves. That's what's said in Matthew 3, 5. Why do you look at that speck in your brother's eye but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye and behold, the log is in your own eye? Many people read that chapter or that verse and say, well, I guess I just, I'm not supposed to be involved in judging my brother. That's not what it says. It says in verse 5, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. It just wants you to make sure that you are not caught up in the same sin that you're bringing to somebody else's attention. But I want to end here because this is an admonition, an exhortation, an encouragement to all of us. It says, look, in Colossians, in Colossians 3.12. So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, as also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful that we have this letter from the Apostle Paul that clearly communicates your word to our heart through a man that had such a great love for a church, your church, that you gave him the privilege to be part of planting, that he would come alongside, come alongside this church to help them preserve the purity of their church. Lord, help us learn from that. Help us learn from that example. Help us to so desire purity in our church that each one of us walk in a manner worthy that each one of us examine our own lives, to be part of being in your word on a daily basis, to have your word richly dwell in us, to be part of 
our daily activity of loving those you brought around us, whether they're of the world or whether they're of the body of Christ, but to have a special relationship with those in the body of Christ. That we accomplish all of the one another's that you've called us to, to love with humility, with unity. And as a result, Father, that you would be glorified, that you would be honored, that you would be pleased with this church at Countryside Bible. And that, Lord, you would look at each one of us as your faithful steward, your faithful servant. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.